0: Reading books and commentaries is good and helpful, but why did you come to church today? Why do you come each Sunday? Why do you come so frequently to hear some part of the Bible expounded and explained? If I stopped doing that, I don't think you would come back. If I skipped the sermon and said, we're just going to sing today, you would say, I'm not going to come to a church where there's no ministry of the Word. That's so important, and it is. And that's the function of the preacher, but it also is the work of the listener to receive that Word and to meditate upon it. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher. I appreciate the opportunity to bring the message of God's Word to you And to all who listen in here today, may God use his own word. We're turning to Hebrews chapter 4 today, to chapter 4, verse 14, where it speaks of we also have an high priest, a high priest. Now, the issue in the book of Hebrews, remember, was that Judaizers who became Christians, they were born again into the church, they had left the temple worship, they had left the priestly worship, and they were now being subtly lured back by the insinuations and statements that you don't have a sacrifice, you don't have a high priest. How are you going to approach God? And the Apostle Paul laid it out thick and heavy here. He said, Seeing, then, that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the apostle said, we do so have a high priest. Indeed, his name is Jesus, the Son of God. We have a high priest who fulfills the office perfectly and eternally. And it is unto him that we go in prayer and in communion to seek God's blessing. What?" An answer this was, and therefore what a message we have, that we do have a high priest, and he is for us and praying in the presence of God, interceding for us even now. That's the message, and we rejoice in it. We also have a word today on gambling. Oh, boy, That, that vice that has come into this nation like a whirlwind, sweeping young people and the vulnerable off their feet into a system where sharks and vultures take advantage. The whole system is rigged from beginning to end. There is no such thing as fair play when you walk in through a casino door. It is a place with charlatans. And I'll have some more things to say on that toward the close of the program. Stay tuned now as we turn to our pulpit from the Free Presbyterian Church, as we let the Bible speak on, Christians do have a high priest. We're going back to chapter 4, and here in the book of Hebrews. Now, I don't mean to take a chapter a week. Uh, I'm taking this as it comes, and I'm really going to be looking at the last few verses in this chapter, but I can't help but deal with the big issue here, the big issue. And the big issue, right out of the gate, you find in the very uh, opening statement here, that the gospel has to be received by faith. It has to be mixed with faith. You see that in the end of verse 2. It says that the gospel was preached to them, that is, Old Testament people, But it was not mixed with faith. Now the word "mixed" there is like digesting your food. When you eat food, you swallow goes down into the stomach, and it is processed. The nutrients of that, of course, end up in the blood system that flows to every part of the body to nurture and nourish every cell in the body. And that process needs to take place when we hear the gospel. It needs to be meditated upon. It needs to be received by faith. If you don't swallow your food, if it doesn't get digested, it doesn't do you any good. It must, the gospel must be received by faith. And the hearing of God's Word is so important. I went back to the larger catechism, and I looked up question 160, and here's the question. What is required in those who hear the Word preached? Do you want the answer? Would you like to hear what people in 1647 wrote? of how Christians should hear and receive the Word, how it should be mixed, processed in our hearts. Here's a very short statement. It is required of those that hear the Word preached that they attend upon it with diligence. Preparation and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Meditate and confer on it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And that comes to the reality that when you have heard the sermon, that's only part of it. That's just the receiving of the information. Then there is the meditation Then there is the application, living out in obedience what we learn from God's Word. Truly, the age-old method of God feeding the hearts of his people is through the preaching of his Word. Reading the Bible is good and important. Reading books and commentaries is good and helpful. But why did you come to church today? Why do you come each Sunday? Why do you come so frequently to hear some part of the Bible expounded and explained? If I stopped doing that, I don't think you would come back. If I skipped the sermon and said, we're just going to sing today, you would say, I'm not going to come to a church where there's no ministry of the Word. That's so important, and it is, and that's the function of the preacher but it also is the work of the listener to receive that word and to meditate upon it. John Calvin said, and this is going back to his day, that only one person in five receives the word as they should. That really lowers the level. So what is needed to receive the word so it's mixed with faith? Some very general ideas heart preparation is required. To come to God's house with a hardened heart, a worldly heart, uh, a bitter heart, a heart that has not really settled to seek God is, going, uh, is not going to receive that word well. We all need to avoid distractions. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Some people sit in a place where they can't even see the preacher. Some children don't get to see the preacher. I think it's exceedingly important that we have eye contact. If everybody was looking down or looking away, what would the preacher do? How could he deliver his sermon? There is this rapport going on between the body language of the preacher as well as his words, and the body language of the listener. And if everybody is distracted, looking away, turning to something else, whatever it is, there is difficulty in ministering the gospel. Eye contact is so important. I want to see your eyes when I preach to you. I say this to children whenever I have opportunity to speak to kids. And you— it is amazing. When you get their eyes, you get their attention. And so that is so important. Now, the first part of verse 2, and I'm coming back here now to Hebrews uh, chapter 4, the first part of verse 2 is really the key to almost all of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I would say this is a key statement for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now, you'll notice that there's an us and them statement here. And the us is the New Testament Christian, those that were now in Christ, heard the gospel, redeemed through Jesus' name, and had professed that they were Christians. Now, who is them? Well, they are the Old Testament people, or the Jews that were still holding to the Old Testament ways. That's the them. Now, you'll notice that it's one gospel. There is only one Savior. There is only one atonement. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Lord Jesus. And so, the message in the Old and the New Testaments is the same. Now, the allegation was that the Jews had so much in their traditional religion that Christians do not have. That was the issue here, because the Jewish religion, the Levitical way of worship, was so visible. You could see the priest, the regular priests, dozens of them. They were dressed in their white linen. They had their clerical garb, you might say. They had their animal sacrifices that were brought to them. There was the, the gushing of the blood from all of those animals, steaming, red, hot blood that was poured into the vessels and taken into the temple and pleaded with before God. And then there was the high priest— Who once per year put on those special garments. What a beautiful sight in the high priest in all the glory and beauty of his garments. And it was so visible, so tangible, that there was a respect and a drawing attraction to each of those things. Now come to a Christian church in the New Testament go into one of their meetings, what do they have? A Bible. They may have had hymnals, songs, psalms, and a Bible. They had none of those things which the Old Testament Christians had. Now, the apostle argues these Jews are stuck in history. They're stuck with their Old Testament ways. But Christians are not. Christians have a hope of a present heaven, the land of eternal rest. Now, I want you to notice that the word rest comes up upteen times in this chapter. And the reasoning behind all of these references to rest is that the Old Testament people spoke about they have arrived. They're in their place of rest. You have the reference there uh, in, uh, let me see what verse we're looking at, 7 and 8. You have the reference there to David and to Joshua. Verse 8, David, of course, he was the king who brought them into into plenty and blessing and to peace. There was a rest in the nation at that time. And then in verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest. Now, notice your margin. If you have a margin Bible, you'll see a little number beside Jesus, and that is interpreted or translated Joshua, because Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of Joshua. But it is referring to the historical Joshua. Now, he was the one who brought the children of Israel out of the wilderness, across the Jordan, into the promised land, and no doubt to a period of rest, physical rest, national rest. David did the same, and yet they spoke of another day and another rest. So, that was the heavenly rest that they aimed for. And in verse 9, this is concluded, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. That rest is heaven. And so our hope is not an earthly, tangible, visible things, but our hope is in the heavenly and in the glory. Just as the Christian Sunday, the first day of the week, is the resurrection day when we meet our risen Lord Jesus— that's what Christians do. We're not looking back, we're looking forward, and we are rejoicing that we have a home in heaven. And the, the wonder is that we have a great high priest. The Christian does not give up anything to be a Christian, because we have a high priest who is now past Into the glory. Look at that in verse 14. And these are the verses I want to major on in our meeting here today. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. So here we have in verse 14 the privileged people. We are a privileged people. We have a great high priest. And we're privileged because we've had the gospel preached unto us, just as they did. We are not giving up the gospel. We are not giving up the wonderful Savior whom God has sent, but rather we are fixing our hope and our confidence in Him. And then we're privileged because. We have personally believed on the Lord. Uh, You remember that is to be mixed with faith. Look at verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Now, that, of course, is a gospel rest, it is peace with God. We have all the benefits and all the privileges of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And of course, we're also looking forward to our heavenly rest. And we are privileged because we have this faith. We have this personal saving faith and interest in the Lord Jesus. And faith is the ability to look unto Jesus and claim all the blessings that are in him. And that's the gift of faith. That's how precious it is. That's how revolutionary it is. It takes our eyes off the visible world onto the one who is now seated at the right hand of God. Now, faith itself is no merit. It is no worth. Just as the paper on a check has no value, when you take a check out of your checkbook, that piece of paper is worthless. It's only when you write on that, the numbers. And as someone said, I would be a millionaire if I had a one, because I have all the zeros, all I need is a one. But it's the numbers on the check that add to the value. The paper itself is nothing. Faith is like a check. Faith itself means nothing, but it is the person that we trust in, the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus, that makes this valuable and wonderfully precious unto us. Now, we're privileged because the gospel promises it brings us into an eternal rest, into heaven itself. In fact, when you study through the matter from verse 3 onwards in this chapter, the whole argument is that New Testament Christians don't just have a temporary rest. It's not just a land. It's not just a kingdom on earth but it is the eternal rest. And the conclusion of it is that we have an eternal rest because we have a high priest who is in heaven. He is there at the right hand of God and appears for us. So, rejoice and consider your privileges as a Christian when the going gets hard in this old world. Maybe you've had a difficult week. Maybe you've had problems and difficulties that you've had to face. But remember, this world is not our home. This world is not the place of our rest. Our rest is heaven. Our rest is where Jesus is, and He is there in the glory. And to endure the difficulties of this world, we need to weigh everything in the scales of heaven— what seems to be an impossible problem and an unending struggle for you here in this world. Rejoice that you have a home in heaven. The other thing to remember that comes out of this chapter is the past is not better than the present. That's what was happening to these people. They had been Jews. They had come to a profession of Christianity. And they were being lured back to the old life. And they began to think the old life was better. Now, that's never true. It's certainly never true for a Christian. Because when you go backward in your life, well, you are going back into the memory of all the struggles and all the cares and all the issues. But change for the Christian is glory. Change for the Christian is glory for the better. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. I'm coming now to the segment on righteousness, exalt of the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Today we're going to look at the vice of gambling. William Secker listed one of the seven deadly sins as avarice, which by definition means the insatiable desire to get riches. One of the daughters of avarice, which the old writers used to mention, was gambling, and the need has not gone by for indicating the true place to which this vice belongs. The desire to make money is undoubtedly at the bottom of the practice. To make money in haste without giving any equivalent for it, and this is its condemnation, but after it has grown into a habit, it becomes a very complex thing. The gambler can hardly tell why he follows with such eagerness the events of the green turf and the fortunes of the green table. There is a fever in his blood which drives him on, rendering ordinary pursuits and ordinary gains steel and making his own heart reckless and hardened. A single act of gambling has an innocent look, the first steps in a gambling career are frequently exhilarating, but the atmosphere soon becomes grimy. The associations and companionships into which it leads are demoralizing, and many a time it ends in the dock and the jail. Gambling is a big problem in Canada. The reason is that provincial governments are the real addicts. The Ontario provincial government itself raked in more than a billion dollars last year from gambling. To do so, it has done everything it can to grow gambling, including licensing more casinos, allowing ATMs and unrestricted hours of operation in them, and increasing the number of video lottery terminals by five times. The result? The number of gamblers has soared. The Wellesley Institute of Ontario reported in 2013 that gambling is common in Ontario. The Canadian Community Health Survey shows that 66% of Ontarians have gambled within the last 12 months, and 85% of Canadians have gambled at some time in their lifetime. For most people, gambling does not significantly affect their lives and their well-being. Social, financial, and health problems arise, however, for problem gamblers. Problem gambling is often not well-defined in debates about gambling. This can lead to the assumption that unless the gambling is compulsive, it is healthy, responsible, and low-risk. Leading researchers have defined low-risk gambling as gambling no more than two to three times per month, spending less than a total of $500 to $1,000 per year, or gambling less than 1% of a gross family income. People who exceed one or more of these criteria can be described as problem gamblers. The Canadian Public Health Association defines problem gambling as a progressive disorder characterized by a continuous or periodic loss of control over gambling, b preoccupation with gambling and money with which to gamble, C, irrational thinking, and D, continuation of the activity despite adverse consequences. In other words, you keep losing, and yet you still keep playing. Now, the answer to the problem is to seek the true riches which are in Christ. The wonderful thing is that the insatiable greed of man is answered in the hope that comes through a living faith in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ and have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in him. The poorest Christian is richer than the wealthiest oil sheik or the king of the vastest earthly kingdom. The Holy Spirit becomes our joy of heart. He ministers to us the fullness of contentment and satisfaction of which money is only a mocker. It's better to have a gospel-preaching church in the city than a gambling casino. It's better to have Christians living in the hope of Christ than gamblers robbing the vulnerable like vultures, damning their own souls in doing it. Judas warns us all, too, of the true outcome of gambling. He traded 30 pieces of silver for his own soul. Let us be warned today, not to enter into the gambling casino or any other form of gambling, but to put our trust in the Savior, in whom there is no risk, but rather in whom is eternal life, abundant life. That's the confidence of the Christian.